0: Okie dokie, a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today
1: we are still in the Gospels. This is Gospels part 57. We are in the midst of we would probably argue one of the more difficult sections in the gospel narrative. This is right dab in the middle of John chapter six with yeah. Jesus talking about the true bread of life and how evangelical interpretation treats it much differently than what Jesus was actually trying to intend with his first century Jewish audience. Um, and things have been okay for the most part, but we're just, going to forewarn you that it's going to get a little more heavy
0: today. (laughs) It's true. Yeah, the thing is, uh, I I have heard so many different interpretations coming out of so many different piece parts of John 6, and so hopefully a long, slow, steady walkthrough is going to help make a little sense of it. We'll find out. Uh, Okay, so Samuel, where have we been? We know... He fed 5,000, they followed him over, he ended up talking to them, they were the ones who were suggesting, hey, I know, why don't you go ahead and do, uh, you know, bread, just like God did with the manna, you could just make it every day, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Jesus, I mean, you know, he didn't really go along with it, but he sort of went with the the idea, and he used it to talk about true bread, and you know the the idea of uh, leading to eternal life resurrection all that stuff so it's getting very interesting but i think jesus is about to uh
1: drop some bombs
0: yeah yeah he's going to push the envelope here and and uh, well anyway
1: instead of instead of pushing the envelope he's pushing the loaf
0: oh <laughs> let's start john chapter 6 this is verses 41 through 47 So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Okay. It's it's not like it just sounds like gobbledygook or anything, and yet you're kind of going, okay, what are we really saying there, right? (laughs) So, So after everything Jesus has already been saying to these people, here's the interesting part. What are they most upset about? They grumbled because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Now, we've been beating that drum a lot already, Samuel, right? Mm -hmm. And now you can see it. It's right there in the text. They're upset because he says that he came down from heaven. Now, we got two things involved here. Uh, And this actually, this kind of is a repeat of where we've already been. It's bread and manna. And second is coming down from heaven. And then, you know what? We also need to notice something else. This isn't actually just the people generally. Who's actually grumbling? Well, John uses the phrase, the Jews. And we've talked about this before. Uh, There's, you know, a few possible different meanings. And here, it seems to be referring to the religious leaders. Now, we don't know if it's necessarily religious leaders right there in Capernaum, or if maybe some are visiting again from Jerusalem, that kind of thing. And if you're wondering how we might know this, well, because we've read ahead a little bit, John gives us some good info at the end of the story. Jesus is doing this whole big talk at the synagogue in Capernaum, and we'll see that down in verse 59. And of course, we know that's already where we are in the story, at least Capernaum. I don't know that it said the, the synagogue specifically. The point is, there's no traveling going on here. This is all kind of happening all, all at once, same sort of time period. But then here's what they said, Samuel. Uh, So first they're upset. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And then they say, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? So it it, it may sound, I don't know, a little weird, but but we have to stop and think about who all is in the crowd. If it was just people from the 5,000, it would definitely be weird because we don't even know if they're from around here. They could be from all over Israel, right? But... Because we know a little bit, what they're in Capernaum, we know that they're even at the synagogue, well, then we could have religious leaders, people around Capernaum, he's popular already, and, and of course we do have some of the crowd from the feeding of the 5,000. <clears throat> the question is, would any of them know his family from Nazareth? And by the way, speaking of Nazareth, Samuel, doesn't what they're asking sound an awful lot? Like what they said back in Nazareth? hmm So since we have said that it's religious leaders that are grumbling, let's just think about that for a second. When he first showed up at Capernaum, like, I don't know, a couple years ago at this point, when he shows up and he starts teaching, um, uh, he's doing miracles, all of these things, Samuel, do you think... That they, the religious leaders, would have inquired about who this guy is. I mean, without a doubt, if
1: anybody's making noise within the public in a, this Jewish sense, they probably want to touch bases with every everything to get what they know.
0: Yeah, you bet. Because on one hand, hey, is he like good guy, bad guy? Do we want him as a part of our group? but also hey are you going to cause trouble for us with the romans right? all kinds of reasons they definitely would have checked him out so so the 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 local religious leaders definitely would have known the details of his family parentage etc and if there were some visiting i'm sure they would have gotten the scoop pretty quickly uh, by the way i got to point this out there are some people who read this and they're like oh well maybe joseph is still alive it says is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Well, I guess you can kind of imagine how somebody might wonder if Joseph is still alive, but he's not. It's just, that's just the way they're speaking. He is Jesus, son of Joseph, that kind of thing. Anyway, so, so the real problem that's being highlighted here is that they know him, Jesus, they know him to be of human origin. They know that he was born to humans in Nazareth. So, how can he say that he's come down from heaven when they know he was born just like everybody else? And of course, we're in the book of John, and John, I think, is he keeps pulling us back to John chapter 1 when he talks about the Word and how it is that that Word became flesh and all of that. So anyway... I mean, they have, I mean, you got to admit, it's a reasonable question, a reasonable uh, pushback. Come on, dude, you're, you're just a guy like all of us. We, we know, we know. But Jesus tells them, hey, don't grumble. And then he goes ahead and gives them more to grumble about. And by the way, here's the thing, Samuel. If we went back to the story about the manna, remember, that's kind of how this all got started. They were suggesting that he do that. Mm-hmm. How did the whole manna thing come about? Do you remember what the people were doing, Samuel?
1: Oh, they were in a shape. They wanted to go back to Egypt because they were hungry. And it's was like, man, we got potted meat in Egypt. We might as well just die because our plight is terrible right now. And God's like, fine, I'll meet you where you're at, even though that response is not what I hoped for you and, and provided manna for them.
0: Yeah, yeah, they were grumbling. And now these guys are grumbling. And it's in a story related to a story about manna. So I, you just you need to see those little connecting dots. Kind of cool. But then, oh, this is this is really good cuz we Jesus uses this phrase, "No one can come to me." Now, in this podcast, we have pushed. We've pushed very hard. That you, Mr. Christian, you have a role and a responsibility in this whole redemption story. And, And here we get this, I think, super important reminder that we all, every single one of us, depend upon God to draw us to him in the first place and we can't leave this out of the story we we must not leave this out of the story god is intimately and actively involved with his creation but this is also important god draws all men some respond some do not those that do respond well according to what Jesus is saying right here, they can look forward to a resurrection unto life. But we're probably going to see a little more of this. It's it's important to know, listen, we're hitting really, really hard about how important it is that you play your part in this whole thing. But at the same time, we can't forget God is actively moving all the time. And this is a, it's a wonderful and beautiful and important part of the story.
1: Now, if we're going to, place that contextual detail back into the text to try to make sense of why Jesus said that in this particular part of the story. Just before that, in verse 43, it says, um, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. So I wonder if his statement about no one coming to me unless the Father sent me draws him is addressing the public's grumblings in in some manner he's suggesting look, guys, like the whole point of me being here is to draw you all to God, the father. Like, please don't grumble because that that's the whole point. Any of us can be able to have a relationship with God in the first place is because he is a he is a God who draws creation to himself.
0: Yeah. And that whole idea of grumbling is all about, hey, you're not buying into the story. God is laying out the truth, laying out the way things are, and you are not coming on board, and so you grumble. And so, yeah, I think what you're saying is exactly right, exactly true, and, and that is even that next part when he says, it is written in the prophets, that's down in Isaiah, it's fifty four thirteen, but here in our text it just says, and they will all be taught by God. That's also a, a nice veiled reference to both Jew and Gentile. But here's the thing, all of God's true children will be taught by him. And if they are taught by him, and this could be through the scriptures, especially Torah, it could be through the Holy Spirit, but if they're taught by him, they will recognize the sent one, the Messiah. And in a weird ironic twist, they will also be taught by him through the very Messiah that he sends, which is kind of neat. But we've heard Jesus say similar things before. And, and if they had truly understood the scriptures, they would have recognized him. It's the same kind of story going on here. Here, Jesus adds a clarification. All those who do hear and learn from the Father, okay, they still haven't actually seen him. Not the way Jesus has. Jesus actually saw him because he came from him, from heaven. Now, that's an amazing statement. And and I mean, just in the very general sense. But at this point in the story, for Jesus to be saying these kinds of things, it really stands out. And it's just another reminder that we're reading John. In the other three Gospels, there's such a difference between how much Jesus appears to know versus how much he appears to know in John. But anyway, he's saying, I came from heaven, I saw him, all that, right? And then he continues, and it's another truly, truly, and it's always that fun game of, so what do you think? Does that apply before? Do you think it applies after? Do you think it applies to both? It's just one of those little phrases you got to always look for and and check it out because I think it enhances the reading. But again, he says, whoever believes, and and, well, let's see, what's he say there? Whoever believes has eternal life, okay? Now, again, I know it sounds like we repeat ourselves, but it's because we do. And we do so because it's important. You need to hear it. This word believe, it's more than just mental assent to an idea of God. It's acting on that belief. It has to be a faith plus a faithfulness. And with that kind of belief, you don't just get eternal life someday. You have eternal life even now. Now it's kind of a foretaste and eventually it will be, you know, it's complete fruition. But the other word, whoever, it says whoever believes. Um, I guess to be fair, the word whoever, it isn't technically in the text. This is it's, it's like derived. It's like they're figuring out how to communicate in English what's being said. So it'd be like he that believes or a believing one or whoever believes. It's very similar though. Go back, uh, Samuel, actually you could read this for us. Go back to John chapter three, verse 36. What's that say?
1: Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on
0: him. And just look at that. What is the opposite of believing in that verse, Samuel? Uh, Not obeying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what's the opposite of not obeying? What would we naturally say? Obeying. Yeah. So obeying and believing they're being equated here. It's so awesome. But it's the same thing. It's whoever believes. So back to verse 40, where we ended last week, this is for everyone who looks on the sun and believes. So I know if, if there happens to be anybody listening who, you know, has some different ideas, maybe about, uh, you know, predeterminism and different things, whatever, you'll notice we're not talking about that because that's not how we read these. We're not going to go into a big spiel or, you know, try to tear anything down or anything like that. This is just, this is how we're interpreting. This is what makes sense for us in the big story. All right. So how about we move on? Because this is, uh, there's a lot here, Samuel. Mm -hmm. John chapter 6, verses 48 to 52 says this. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, "How can this man give us his flesh to eat?" I feel
1: like this is a perfect verse, since we're five days away from Halloween. <laughs>
0: Giving True. us flesh
1: to eat.
0: <laughs> now, now, you, this is the part where I mean, anybody reading has to understand. He is, I mean, he is way outside the box, and people are starting. You know they 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 may have been with him for a while but now it's starting to get a little weird, right? Yeah. So so the thing is Jesus he's kind of returning to the metaphor. He's saying I am the bread of life. Now again, we've talked about the I am statements in John and so this is this happens to be like more of a continuous one. He says I am a number of times in this chapter. But Jesus, he's trying to further highlight the superiority of the bread of life. So, on one hand, you've got manna. Now it, you know, kind of sort of gave life or sustained life, but it was only within sort of like the ordinary creation terms. It's like, from our perspective, it was just on par with ordinary food. It was just delivered in a miraculous way. This bread of life, however, could overcome death. Now, For those who were there, you know, actually hearing this live and in person. I mean, it must have sounded at least a little crazy. Which makes it crazy bread. (laughs) Yum, yum, Samuel. (laughs) Yet... Even though it sounded a little bit crazy, at the same time, you know, it did It did fit in with the ideas they currently had, these ideas of fixing the world, the ideas of returning to Eden and all of that. So it wasn't way outside the box and yet it was pretty challenging. Now, we we have the advantage of hindsight and we know what Jesus is talking about. It wasn't that he was saying that one who was currently living would not die. It was saying, look, one could live and not die. And of course, when is that? Well, when he's resurrected unto life. But for them hearing this right there, first time, whatever, that had to be a little bit weird. But again, again, A lot of these themes are repeating. So what is Jesus asserting here? Two basic things. And I think you're going to pick up on the pattern, Samuel. Number one, he's asserting that he is the living bread. And number two, that he came down from heaven. You hear the repeat there? Mm -hmm. And then he says it again. If you eat of this bread, you will live forever. Now again, I think we, the readers today, I think the people who were listening back then, I think up to this point, people were probably, you know, kind of in on the metaphor and all that. They they, they sort of got the idea of, well, maybe they were partaking of his teaching or his lifestyle, etc. Okay, so, so again, them and us, but—and oh, just for clarity, because I know people talk about this a lot—first century Jews— we're probably way better with metaphor and analogy and stories, especially in terms of teaching, etc. way better than we are. Because we're, we're Western-like culture. We're very good with lists and bullets and systematic linear thoughts and, you know, whatever. They were good with stories. But Jesus adds this, the bread that I will give for the life of the world— is my flesh. Now, that's just weird. I don't care what language you're in, right? That's, that's hard. So it understandably, it throws them off a little bit. Now, you might ask the question, what does his physical body have to do with anything? And before we continue, hopefully we'll learn and understand, uh, it's probably time for us to remind ourselves, John loves to tell a story By introducing confusion so that he can follow it up with what, Samuel?
1: Um, That you go from, this is a problem, to there is no problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. He introduces confusion, and then he brings the clarity. So, I mean, I'm sure this, whatever Jesus is talking about here, I'm sure it's probably confusing to the people, but you know, you wonder about things. Did they really just jump straight to the literal interpretation of his words like John keeps telling us? And, and maybe they did, or maybe not. Maybe it's a storytelling feature or, you know, just his style or whatever. We don't know, uh, but we know, because again, we've got hindsight. We understand that Jesus is referring to his upcoming crucifixion. And, and it's right for us to do so because we know that's coming. But John's telling of the story uh, it's suggesting that Jesus has a much deeper knowledge a much more detailed knowledge of his own stories than any of the other gospels do, and it reminds me uh we're not going to go there but uh in Romans chapter six, Paul gets to talking about some things, and I think it actually if if you would take the time to go there and read through that, look at that a little bit, it actually I think might help a little in understanding what's going on here we I guess part of Paul's point is basically just to say that we also enter into his death. We also enter into his crucifixion, even. And then we we begin to understand that it is the faith plus the faithfulness that is, you know, that's how we eat of this bread. And so if we do that, then we will also enter into his resurrection. So Romans chapter six, check that one out. Uh, but again, it's the Jews and, and we're saying that it's the religious leaders that are in this little, uh, scenario here. They are the ones that are having a problem with Jesus's words. It doesn't mean that no one else is, but that's who John is pointing out. And they obviously aren't getting what he's actually saying. I think that's fair to say, but it's kind of funny. Uh, they seem to just let his seemingly absurd words go ahead and actually just be absurd because they don't understand it, it it's almost it's almost like a way of saying i don't even understand what you're talking about without saying i don't understand what you're talking about so instead they they'd say something absurd like how can this man give us his flesh to eat you know this guy's suggesting cannibalism which of course In reality, they know that he's not, but they don't know what he's talking about.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about them struggling with this particular dynamic of Jesus' teaching, because I'm just thinking of other rabbinic approaches for wisdom to try to be demonstrated. And there's like Midrash that talk about letters of the hebrew alphabet going up into the heavens <laughs> and right. like and talking with god and that that doesn't seem to be a problem because it's it's within midrashic text that jewish culture reveres and loves and clings yeah. to and then in this case like i know it's not exactly the same but if if you're just trying to treat jesus's words and his teaching system rabbinically You would expect them to be like, okay, I know this sounds crazy, but this rabbi has to be going somewhere with this, so let's give him the benefit of the doubt and see how he's going to bring it home. So it's just interesting to see them throwing up these walls that quickly before he even gets to the end of his teaching.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you got to wonder, are they coming into this? Are they they really being fair and listening, open-minded kind of stuff? Or not? Did they just have this preconceived idea, and that's why the wall's there? And then you also got to wonder: is this, is this John's way of telling the story? You know, all the, it, it's just—it's really hard to know. But mm-hmm. it's the text that we have, and we just kind of, kind of get what we came from. But here's the thing, Samuel: already that last little bit, okay, that started to get a little weird, and now. Jesus is not going to let it rest. He's really going to lay it on him. <laughs> he does, but he's a button pusher sometimes. So, you ready? Yeah. John chapter 6 verses 53 to 59. So Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum.
1: (laughs) I swear this needs to be a Halloween-themed okie-dokie most episode. I (laughs) want to drink your blood.
0: (laughs) I'm going to bite your neck. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, he really, I mean, how much further could you push that really? I mean, he is—he is really messing with their heads. So again, this is another one of those things where he starts out, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood." Okay, so where does the truly truly apply there? Before, after, both? <laughs> so that's a fun one. But he's really pushing it now. And on one hand, he appears to be taking the metaphor to these crazy, crazy extremes—eating flesh and drinking blood—and This is important, Samuel. Israel, the Jews, they had all of these laws and and they had, you know, sort of like their traditions that went along with them. These were absolute no-nos for Israel. Eating flesh, drinking blood, no way. God would never have allowed that. So could it possibly be that Jesus would have meant that in any way? Of course not. Now, on the other hand, instead of these crazy extremes, We might also look for, hey, in here, is he offering us a clear and beautiful explanation? If only they would have been listening, if only they could hear it. And of course, we're going to argue that yes, he is. And so here's the thing. Let's talk about eating his flesh. Number one, it says that it results in true life. And that could be now, or it could result in eternal life through resurrection. It is true food. And then, right in the middle there, Samuel, it gives us like the big finish or the explanation. It says, eating his flesh, if you want to know what that is specifically, it is abiding in him and him abiding in you. Verse 56, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So to eat his flesh is to take on his life, to be a disciple, to be a copy, to be a clone even. Eating this food, eating regular food nourishes the body, eating his flesh nourishes the spirit. And then he kind of does the same thing with drinking his blood. That results in true life. That could be now, right? We've talked about that foretaste. And it could result in eternal life through resurrection. It's the true drink, and it's the same thing. What what does it even mean to drink his blood? Well, it is to abide in him and him and you. To drink his blood, just like the food, it's to take on his life, to be a disciple, to be a copy. To be a clone. Drinking liquids normally might nourish the body, but drinking his blood nourishes the spirit. And this abiding, it's uh, man, it's a, it's, uh, uh, so many different uh, ways to look at that word. It could mean to conform or to, to continue in place or to, to remain stable. But it, we need to abide in him and him in us. That's what eating his flesh and drinking his blood is.
1: And if we pause like right there and just think about that itself, that doesn't seem as crazy right, within that culture because rabbinically, uh, a student's main goal, a student's main mission Was to imitate his teacher, to imitate his rabbi, to be as closely aligned with, I mean, not even just spiritual things, but everyday life things. So, I mean, that it just fits so well into first century rabbinic
0: discipleship. Yeah, and you're right. This section where we finally felt like, oh my gosh, he has pushed it way too far, and then you realize, yeah, but... Even while he was doing that, he was actually offering the explanation. It's right there. It's so beautiful. And as he continues, he says, I live because of the Father. And this is one of those examples where, man, I wish that the underlying text had just an extra word or two in there. I wish it had been a little more explicit, something like, I live because I feed on the Father, because that's really the message that's being communicated here. The living Father gives Jesus life when Jesus feeds on him or abides in him. And we too can have life if we feed on Jesus. And that is to abide in him. And of course, him and us. Because Jesus is going to continue to abide in the Father, right? So there's a whole connection. I mean, it's, this is how we connect to the Father in, in, in a sense. It's great. So anyway, I don't know. I just, it's, it's beautiful. He talks about uh, this is the bread. So all this crazy talk about bread and it takes us back. I know we've looked at this a few times already recently, but it's important. Uh, Samuel, take us back to Deuteronomy 8, 3. Read that for us again.
1: And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every
0: word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Yes. And so the true word, I'm sorry, (laughs) the true bread, that's every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. It's God's words, God's command, God's instructions, etc. They are the true bread, the bread of life. And this is, of course, in contrast to that temporary manna. The the words of God, they came down from heaven at Sinai. All Jews, all of Israel would know that. But they've also come down from heaven in the person of Jesus. The word made flesh. That's, of course, John chapter 1. Anyone who, who feeds on God's words, commands, instructions, etc., will live forever.
1: And again, I, I sound like a broken record, but as we're walking through this slowly and we're bringing up these other Old Testament references, at least for me as I'm hearing it, it's like, Gosh, this is th- that's exactly the same thing Jesus just said in John six. Like, in <laughs> mm-hmm. this De- this Deuteronomy section is saying like your nourishment, your nutrition in life, not just your physical, but your reality as a per- as a human being. It's not just dependent on the physical, but it's on like the creator of the universe who made you and is sustaining you and is giving you wisdom in order to navigate life. And that's what Jesus is saying two. exactly exactly it's just it's just shocking that jesus is approaching his r- reminder of this teaching from god in such a a shocking way i guess i just it, i'm still in awe that <laughs> he would, he's
0: doing the approach that he's doing it's just it's crazy yeah it is it's really shocking it really is now I want to I want to uh, talk about a couple of things hopefully really quickly. I just don't want them to get uh ignored. Uh, a lot of people when they go through this uh part of the scripture, uh, they they think, "Oh, wow, you know, I I'm seeing hints of the Passover uh, or or maybe I'm seeing hints of the sacrificial system." And okay, point number 1, great. It's good that you see and hear those things, those those kind of hints. But Keep them in perspective. Don't take them too far and think that Jesus is actually offering up these kind of insights you know, for what is to come for the people that are listening to that day. I, I don't think that's a, the case. Uh, we may see those hints in hindsight, but I, I don't think he was trying to give them a heads up on what was coming. Uh, now, the New Testament writers and John here, of course, we're going to see it. They're going to see it. But just just don't try to lay that back on top of the story. That's a mistake we often make, right? And and don't let those connections somehow overshadow what's really going on in the text. And then, I know we mentioned it before, John adds a little bit at the end where, hey, remember, this is all happening at a synagogue at Capernaum. And, again, probably religious leaders, probably some people just from Capernaum as part of the crowd— and we probably have people from the feeding of the 5,000. So just keeping our heads in the game. Okay. Now, he's pushed pretty hard. Let's see how they respond, Sam. Are you ready? Oh, boy. John chapter 6, verses 60 to 62. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, if you've been paying attention, that probably sounded like uh, did we skip something? Because <laughs> that just felt like we took a hard turn in there. So what happened? But let's take a look at what's actually happening. We, we, what we're seeing is now we're talking about the disciples. It wasn't just the religious leaders who were bothered by what Jesus was saying. Many of his own disciples, they're bothered. They're saying, Ooh, boy, I don't know. That's just hard to hear. This, I mean, this is kind of too much. How, how are we even supposed to listen to this? Which, okay, we just spent all this time trying to walk through carefully, and we, we think that we're bringing out the explanation that's right there in the text, which, of course, John was nice enough to give to us. But, again, we're looking back. We're not actually living this in real time. So, here's the question, though. Samuel, what is it that was so hard for them? Was it that they thought he really meant for them to be cannibals? Uh, no. So was it that they, you know, weren't picking up on Jesus' uh, reference to the Eucharist, which hadn't happened yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's It's like they're picking up on something that, that we wouldn't think of or wouldn't see, whatever, because we're coming from a different perspective. It's really bothering them. We don't see it. But remember, Jesus has already literally explained the metaphor about the food and the drink, the eating the food, the the drinking the, the blood, right? Eating his body. Eating and drinking were abiding in him, vice versa. So, it still leaves you confused. Well, what exactly are they bothered about? Well, thankfully, Jesus knows exactly what is bothering them. And the clue is what he says in verse 62 that felt like it came out of nowhere. It felt like it didn't even fit. So apparently the disciples, they aren't exactly within earshot when they're grumbling, but Jesus knows anyway. And there's a little life lesson for you. Sometimes Jesus just knows stuff about you. Better be careful. Anyway, so Jesus, he goes directly after the part that's bugging them. And he asks, well, what if you saw me ascending? Well, what's the opposite of ascending, Samuel? Descending. Yeah. So what is it that was really bothering them?
1: They were, yeah, that they... The... He said that he came down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We get so wrapped up in the food and the drink and the eating the flesh and the drinking the blood. We're kind of missing what they're actually bothered by. See, they weren't upset about the fled flesh and blood stuff. Well, at least not only. It was the fact that he claimed to have come down from heaven and we've said it before, like only God is supposed to do. They knew that he was born just like everyone else. He was human. And he's claiming to have come down from heaven like God does, which is in a way equating himself with God or possibly suggesting divine nature, all this kind of stuff. And They don't like that. And here are these people. They're disciples. They've been around him. They've listened to his teaching. They've saw him do miracles. They've seen all of these things. And there's probably some part of them that's going, "Uh uh-oh, is this guy for real? Or is he just insane? And they don't know what to do. so. Go ahead, Samuel
1: oh, I just was going to ask when the text says some of his disciples were asking this we that that shouldn't cause us to assume that that includes the twelve apostles should we like it could all it could mean like because he had Jesus had other disciples besides the twelve following him around and stuff so exactly. I, I'm just trying to paint that contextual picture
0: picture yeah. Yeah, great point. If we had never read this before, we, we, and we'd only read up to this point, we would have no clue if this included the 12 or not, or if it was only the 12, or if it was others outside, and you're right, we know he has many, many more disciples, the 12 are just special because they became apostles that uh, on that mission. But we will find out later, so maybe we won't do the spoiler yet, <laughs> but Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean the 12th. Okay.
1: Yeah. I also want to say that like, I can empathize with this struggling, and at the same time, I struggle with their struggling, because especially if within this crowd there were people who potentially grew up in the same area that Jesus did, even within his own ministry, like the past however many Years along the story we're at right now that especially with them thinking about a transcendent God who is outside of our physical realms of reality and everything it it would be hard for them to imagine like I have lived with this guy or in the same area my whole life, like how can he say that he came down from heaven when he's been here the whole time so Like give them a little bit of a break. But at the same time, like I'm, I'm going back to the tour and I'm thinking, wait, they have things within their own story about heavenly beings, like heavenly characters within the story coming down and interacting with the patriarchs in a, in a very physical manner. Like Abraham had the three visitors that he, he and Sarah gave bread to like feeded them. They stayed in within their own house. Like Jacob, he wrestled with that a strange visitor, and within all, both of those stories, Jewish tradition treats them as this heavenly visitor. So, at the, in that other token, I'm thinking like, like, why aren't they treating this like in a similar manner? I don't
0: know. Was it too close to home? Like, I, I don't know. It, well, and yeah, it's a, so again, it's a lot like the Nazareth story. It's like, man, I don't know. You, I, you're a, you're a guy. You're a human guy, just like me. And you're, I don't, I don't, I can't buy this. That, that Something ain't right. Yeah. I don't know. It's a hard thing, Samuel. But yeah, I, I can relate to what you're saying. Well, let's see what they do or what Jesus does anyway. So, John chapter 6, verses 63 to 66, he says this It is the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit, and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is a heavy, heavy moment. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. So yes, number one, they were very, very upset about this idea of him coming down from heaven. It was something, and again, like, like you talked about, we've seen, Different things throughout the scriptures, we know that there are beings that come from the heavenly realm at the very least, whatever, but there there was something special some 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 special attribute that they held out to God that said he was the one that came down from heaven. Now Jesus is saying that but but here we see that he's also kind of acknowledging the difficulty of how far he pushed the metaphor. Uh, with the flesh and blood stuff, also, so Jesus tries to clear things up a little bit at least it seems to me he explains again that this really doesn't have anything to do with the flesh per se. I mean obviously Jesus is here in the flesh, so that's relevant, but it's it's actually the spirit that gives life, and the key is understanding that life is given through the Word, and the two most prominent examples, we have God's word in the Torah, and we have God's word made flesh in his Messiah. So Jesus's words, his teachings around the Torah, his teachings of the kingdom, well, they are that same spirit and that same life. And then, you know, Jesus, he seems to know, even among his disciples, that there are those who don't really get it they don't really believe and so I think if we're looking at not just the twelve but all of the disciples the, the extended group that's why it says Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him so we talk about Judas separately right um And don't think for a second that this is only true back then for them. This is also true for us now. We could probably go to churches all over, all over, everywhere, and you're going to find the same thing. There are those who really don't really, really get it or believe it. And this is important. Not really fooling Jesus. He's fully aware of the truth, both then and now. And in a weird sort of way, I guess it's John, the writer, he's he's kind of even grouping those who don't believe along with somebody who betrayed him, like Judas, right? <laughs> so, at least from John's perspective, this is bad. You don't want to be in that group. But Jesus, he he brings this, this, this is a real life example of what he was saying back in verse 44. See, boy, that's way back there. So what does that say? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, so, so this is the real-life example where people are not going to just naturally you know, go with the story. There's, there's uh, maybe our more modern terms. If we said, look, there, there's a couple of ideas. Jesus is God, and we must be obedient to all that God has said. Okay, those two things, they're actually hard to accept. And we need God to draw us, maybe even continually. I I wouldn't think that that would be a one-time event. But that idea of God drawing us, that's the same thing as God giving or granting. God is making it possible. It's almost as if God is providing the hunger— and then from this story, we know that Jesus is the bread. Anyway, uh, it's it's kind of hard. I think even now for us, we have the benefit of all this time. It's hard to wrap our heads around this, but many of his disciples, people, they were there. They'd witnessed a lot. They just couldn't take it. When faced with the full weight of Jesus's essence, the fact that he is from heaven, and I would say divine, uh, understanding what his actual calling is, bringing resurrected life, and their calling in relation to that, well, they decided they just couldn't accept it. It was too much to ask. And again, isn't that equally true today? If we were to walk around and tell people, hey, I don't care what denomination you are, I don't care what theology and doctrines you stick to, or whatever, we're telling you this, you have to not just believe with your brain or your heart, you have to actually do everything that is possible for you to do in his word. And of course, we accept for the the, the exclusively covenantal Jewish things, whatever, we get that. And we said, hey, you can't be a Christian unless you agree to just do all that stuff. Well, do you think any of them are going to stick around, Samuel? I don't I don't know. It, probably not. Yeah, there are going to be some who would walk away, right? You're ruining the story. I liked it when it was just believe and you get to go to heaven. So it's here's the thing, though. Imagine Jesus. You can't get around the fact he's a human being. And all of this stuff, is just, these are disciples. They just left. So he's probably, I mean, what? Uh, sad? Uh, hurt? Frustrated? Angry? I don't know. I mean, a lot of, th- you can imagine how you might feel, and he is probably struggling with very similar things. But this is Samuel, we cannot skip this point. It is, it's so, so spiritual. <laughs> I want you to notice that in this verse, when his disciples turn back and no longer walk with him, this is John 6, 66. <laughs> it's meant to be. Yeah. Now... To be fair, we're not really big fans or proponents of this whole 666 thing and what a lot of people think it is. Uh, One day, hopefully, we'll make it to it in a podcast somewhere, but Mm -hmm. uh, still, that is funny. The one verse in all of the New Testament that has the chapter 6, verse 66, this is it right here. And what's going on? Disciples turning their back on Jesus. Somebody somewhere meant that. <laughs> yeah.
1: A spiritual irony.
0: Yeah. That's awesome.
1: Um, now I want to say really quickly back in, um, six, chapter six, verse 63, whenever he said the flesh is no help at all, I, I, I don't want listeners to take that to mean that Jesus is advocating that we need to do all that we can to, um, I don't know what the word is, like discriminate against our physical bodies and how we're created because everything about our physical nature is terrible and only the spiritual is the is the element that can save us or help us. That is not what he's saying. in 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 my interpretation, I feel like Jesus is saying you've got your priorities backwards. Like if if we go back all the way to the beginning, Genesis one, like what was it that actually gave life to the created world it was the spirit like the yes. spirit was hovering over the chaotic waters it was the agent in which god used to give life to the reality that we know it as today and yeah. jesus is trying to say like the, the the priority shouldn't be the physical that the spirit gave life to the priority should be the Spirit itself, uh, and then that, that creates a healthy circle rather than an unhealthy circle of thinking. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and if, if there's anybody that's not really, you know, buying what you're selling, Sam, you just got to think about the end of the story. Of course, most people, I, I guess, have a different idea about this as well, but, I mean, in your Bible, in the end of the story— If you're going to live eternally, you're going to do it in a physical body, on a physical earth. It's a resurrected body. It's a resurrected earth. Okay. But the end of the story is not you as a spirit being all wispy and floaty and whatever in heaven. It's in creation. You're a physical body eternally. So what sense would it make for you to shun the flesh now? You need, you need to bring that flesh into agreement with the Spirit and with God. You need to bring it into submission. So, yeah, t- Samuel, great point. So glad you uh, brought that up.
1: Yeah, I, <laughs> I want to go down another rabbit trail real quick, but I, <laughs> of me doesn't because I know we're getting close to time, but uh, I'll, I'll let you be the judge of whether we should cut it off or not. go okay so i've been working really hard on trying to put some time into studying midrashic stuff because i'm really into that and there is something that i read within the past two weeks that i think fits so perfectly with this portion of john 6 that jesus is talking about showing this dichotomy between pursuing the things of the flesh and, or the physical rather than pursuing the things of the spirit or eternal. Do you mind if I read it just really quickly? No, do it. Okay. So let me give it just a little bit of setup first. So, um, in Genesis one, the very first verse of the Bible in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The, the, the Hebrew word there for the very first part of that is Berashi. And that starts with the Hebrew equivalent of B. And so um, keep that in mind for this part. It's going to get a little weird, kind of like the flesh and blood stuff, but I, I hope that you follow this because I, I, like, I've like i just been floored for the past two weeks. So here it goes. When God commenced the Torah with the word Berashi, which begins with the letter B, the letter A was dissatisfied that it had been, that it had been passed over. It complained to God for twenty six generations, saying, I am the very first letter, and yet I was left out at the beginning of the Torah. I swear to you, God promised the A, that you will see justice done. When I give the Torah to my children at Mount Sinai, I shall commence with none other than the letter A. When God gave the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel, he placed an A at the beginning, saying, I am the Lord your God, which that statement begins with the Hebrew letter A. And so the Midrash is, like, what is the significance of the fact that God ignored the A at the beginning of the Torah and only reinstated it to its proper position when giving the Torah to Israel? And here's what the Midrash conveys. So living as we do in the physical world of creation, we tend to give priority to our physical needs. We make sure we have a good job, a nice home, a convenient life. Once these points are settled, we juggle our spiritual needs accordingly. Studying Torah in the time we have left over at the end of the day and finding a suitable school near the location chosen for living, or, in other words, we attach the A, the primary concern, to the fulfillment of a satisfactory material life. Torah is consequently reduced to B, the secondary rank. The Midrash reveals to us that God would rather have it the other way around. He prefaced the account of the six days of creation of the physical world with a B deliberately, leaving out the A. The A, our primary concern, must belong to Torah. Let us make sure that the A will not complain. (laughs)
0: that is awesome what does that come from or can you get me a reference whatever that we can put in the okie dokie notes
1: well it's uh, it's our midrash says oh yeah (laughs) yeah.
0: nice well we'll put that in there send me like the the volume and page Mm -hmm. number something like that so we can get it in
1: it's a little pricey but it's it's so worth it oh my goodness like that is like on every single page it's so good
0: See, those stories, if you were listening to that story and you're thinking, I don't see the beauty, whatever, give it time. Give it time. Once you start getting used to how they think and how they teach and whatever, it just, oh, that is, that is good. Thank you for sharing that, Samuel. It was worth an extra minute or two. Yeah. Glad to do it. All right. Well. I think we're overstaying our welcome. We better get out of here. Okie dokie. Oh! Thanks for listening to
1: the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at wwwokie dokie And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okie at gmail.com and until next time we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth we'll talk to you again soon